Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news over here this week. We have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash late night. Go over there, sign up at any tier, and you'll have access to it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash late night. Now, enjoy the show. This is super relevant because I actually bought a phone this morning. Ah. Did you do what you told me you were going to do? Um, I don't know, but check this shit out. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of phone is it? It's a Galaxy Z Flip. Oh, it's flippy. Oh, okay. So it's a foldable smartphone. It whips. I'm so excited. It's so big. It's like a little Game Boy Advance when you close it. And it has a screen on the outside of it. It's like a little pager. And then it's just large. That's awesome. Layton, can I ask how old you are? I am 24. Okay. Yeah. So when I was 24, I had a flip phone too, but it was real small. It's called a Razor. (laughs) (laughs) And it fit in my back pocket and I loved it. It was like ergonomic to my butt. Like Razors were the jam back in the day. My mom had a Razor. Your mom had a Razor? My mom had a Razor. I I had a dinky. My first phone was a flip phone. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, my first phone was everybody's first phone. Well, everybody of a certain age was, was the little Nokia phone that you could play mm-hmm. Snake yeah. on. That like we all had the same first phone because it's the only phone you could get, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember having one of the early cell phones where the number pad was just exposed. Oh, you had like a Zach Morris cell phone. Yeah, that's right. Oh. I mean, it wasn't like the real chonky one, uh-huh. but it was pretty chonky. And it was like the easiest thing in the world to like dial. It had nothing protecting it. <laughs> This was like 2002, probably-ish. Right. That's around when I got my first phone, probably. Because how old are you, Brian? I'm 46. Okay. And I'm 38. So I'm eight years younger. But 2002, I would have just graduated from high school. I would have been in college. I definitely had a cell phone. But yeah, Yeah. it was a garbage phone. And I was like on Friendster. Oh, yeah. And IRC. Yep. Rocking it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I never did Friendster. Wait, I forget. Friendster was like MySpace before Friendster. Oh, IRC right. was chat rooms. Right, that's right. It was right. just okay. straight like cha- we hung out in Channel High and then that got shut down and we were in Channel Higher. Yeah, that is my <laughs> late high school, early college. Was it like topic specific chat room? Yeah, but mostly it was like if you know where everybody that you're friends with is and we were all like potheads. Yeah. Wow. What's it called now? There's the Reddit subreddit for stoners, r slash trees. They have like trees network or something where it's basically Mm. like people can queue up YouTube videos and they all sit and like smoke weed together in the chat and watch YouTube videos together. It's pretty cute. That's cute. Like back when I was in Channel High, we did not have the capacity to watch videos on our computer at the same time. Oh, yeah. We were just talking about being high and coming up with like early emoticons. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I took a vow which I have maintained which I never did and I will never use emoticons. Wait, emoticons or emojis? Emoticons. I'll use okay. emojis. Oh, I use emoticons because sometimes I'm too lazy to find the smiley face. I'll do a colon parentheses. I can't do it. Well, and as we've discussed on this show, tonally a smiling emoji and a smiling emoticon are very different things. Yes. Are they? Oh, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Oh. 
Kara, did you read Gretchen McCullough's book, Because Internet? No. You'd love this book. Okay. It's so great. So she is a linguist, uh-huh. and she basically wrote this whole book about you know, different generations who have existed on the internet in different, you know, ways, uh-huh. use language on the internet and by text and everything. Right, right. Like I actually say the words JK out loud like an idiot. Right. I do it all the time. <laughs> like JK, JK. Like, yeah. what is that? It's a fascinating book. She has this whole thing about emojis. Emojis are gestures. Yeah. Which I never thought about until she kind of locked it in. Of course they are. There's also a great documentary about the Unicode and about the emoji and like how it came to be and how different emojis get approved by the Unicode board. And yeah, it's really good. I think I found it on Hulu. What's it called? Don't remember. Just look up Unicode (laughs) emoji documentary. I'll find it right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's like a board of people and people suggest things and it's this whole process to get stuff approved, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's called the Emoji Commission. Oh, Is it called? Oh, the emoji story or beyond the emoji. I'm not sure. There's two different ones. It's so crazy to me that every environment has its own way of representing the emoji. Yeah. Which seems just nuts. But wait, you guys haven't explained to me then the emoticon of a smiley face versus the emoji. Because if I'm using text to speech in the car, like I'm push the button to make Siri talk for me. And Mm -hmm. I say, I'm on my way, smiley face. It won't use an emoji. It'll make a smiley face emoticon. Hmm. Well, it's also really contextual, right? And like, depends on who you're talking to. Because for me, a smiley face is like, if I'm speaking to a member of my family or an older person who I know has no sort of like subtextual level of a regular smiley face, then I will use a smiley face as a friendly thing. You mean the emoji? No, like an emoticon smiley face, like colon parentheses. Okay, yeah. Or bracket if I'm feeling spicy. I never bracket. (laughs) The bracket's fun. But if I'm talking to a friend, it's sort of the accepted, like, if I'm using a smiley face, it's ironic. And it's in the sense of like, this shit sucks. Oh. That's the shorthand of using an emoticon smiley or just like super passive aggressive. You don't just use an emoji? No. Like the one with the teeth or like no. a monkey with the eye. Okay. <laughs> no. Everything has to be cloaked in multiple layers of meaning. <laughs> yeah, for me, I don't have time for that shit. <laughs> I don't have time to like decode your yeah. texts. <laughs> Were you telling me Leighton LMAO is only ironic, right? To you? Yes. Yeah. What about Raffle? Uh, Raffle's old school. Maybe yeah. when I was on forums when I was a child. Rafflecopter ever. It was... <laughs> Oh I'm my like God. Really dating myself wow. here. I mean, yeah. That's the Rafflecopter. That's 20 years old now, I, know. I think, like, right? Yeah, let's talk about Strong Bad now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch Radiskull? Radiskull? Do you remember What's Radiskull? That? No. Was it online? Yeah, it was one of those early Flash animations. Oh, I loved those. Yeah, they were awesome. And it was like a skull with like kind of like a punk, like mohawk, like a spiky mohawk. And he had a little friend called Devil Doll. And nice. Radiskull basically just uh, drank a lot of coffee and fucked with people. I dig it. Was, it. I dig it. It yeah. was great. It was my favorite thing when it was on. Oh, man, those old Flash animations. And you would wait for them, too. You'd wait for them to load forever. Mm-hmm. They were just on these crazy upload schedules. It would be like months and months and months <laughs> between them. So you'd be like, when is episode three coming out? Come on. <laughs> and then there's always something where they're like, we're writing a book. And then the book never happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know. 
Oh, the internet. What a weird thing to not be a digital native. Like, I can't imagine what it must be like for little kids who just grow up and it's like easy for them. Like, it's easy for me because I'm at that age, you know? Yeah. I began to really get it in like fifth grade. Like, we had a computer lab at school, but not everybody had a computer at home. Mm. And the computer lab at school, like, we didn't all have a computer. There was like three in the back of the classroom that you would fight for to play like Snake. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at least I like sort of got it. But there are some people, the computer on the internet was not a thing until after college for them. Yeah, I'm just a little too young for them. I remember I went to like an honors program when I was 16, so that would have been like 91, summer mm-hmm. of 91. And that was my first, like, they had virtual terminals. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, code and what yeah. Lisp or fucking whatever and, you know, chat with people. And that was the first time I'd ever seen, like, quote unquote, the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was like the green text on a black screen. Oh, kind yeah. Of yeah. Thing. It's like Doogie Hauser. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We had one of those at home. We had like a Commodore or something. My dad made oh, us yeah. do journals on it. But I definitely remember, <laughs> wow. like, this tells you exactly where I was at these sort of like formidable stages. So I was in college and I wrote my undergraduate thesis and it was on a diskette. So not a floppy disk, mm-hmm. but a diskette, the one with the little metal thing that you could like to protect it. You like slid it over the hard ones. Three and a half inch. No, three and a half inch were the big black floppies, right? No, that's five and a quarter. That's five and a quarter. Okay, so yeah. My undergrad thesis was on a three and a half inch. Yep, and it corrupted. Wow. Oh, no. And I paid somebody to retype the whole thing. Oh, my God. Yeah, because there was no way in hell I was going to sit down and retype it. But I had to because I had to make edits. And so it was that era where, like, you would move your file from computer to computer you yep. had to. And then, like, I paid somebody to do that. So that was sort of the oh the data era. There were no flash drives when I was in undergrad. So I graduated college 97. So I clearly remember, like, there was a way to basically telnet into my computer from Ooh. places on campus. That's fancy. Maybe I didn't great. have a computer. That's probably the <laughs> other problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the thing was, it was never reliable. Mm. So... You know, if you wanted to go print it, every time it was a gamble. So if you're trying to print something right before class, I remember rushing to the computer lab and, you know, you'd go up and it'd be like, fuck, it's like it's not connecting or, you know, it was an endless problem. Yeah. Well, and also everybody else was printing too. So you had to wait for the queue. That's right. And someone else wasn't working. So they'd try it 20 times and then the queue would just get eaten by this one like 60 page paper. And then the person would just give up. And then there was nothing you could do. So you had to contact the ad. It was a whole fucking thing. Oh my God. Do people in classes or high schools or whatever still have to print stuff? Surely we're not still doing that. I don't think so. Not now. I wonder. Probably not. No, yeah. you just email them the PDF or something. Yeah, I would think. Because when I was in high school, which was pretty recently, we were still printing stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it was a nightmare. And also, I was surprised to learn that, like, in high schools now, kids can just, like, use their phones out during class. Really? Like, they did not want to see them at all, and it was not chill. Maybe at lunch, yeah. but... No, my, my daughter's school, which only goes up to eighth grade, has a very strict, like, no phones on campus end of story Policy, which, of course, for the little kids doesn't matter. Sure. But don't most little kids have phones now, like, based on what I see in public? Not Audrey's age. Okay. I'm sure all the 13-year-olds do. That'd be crazy for them not to have phones. (laughs) (laughs) 
Giving a 13-year-old a smartphone is like handing a toddler a hand grenade. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you are signaling, like, I'm on the phone, what is the charade for that? What do you do with your hand? Like, I'm on a phone call? Yeah, like... That. See? Okay. So Leighton held her hand up like a Lego. Yep. Like she was holding a smartphone. My friend held her hand up like the, the you know, hang 10. Hang loose, yeah. Hang loose, yeah. Because that's how we used to indicate, because our phones used to be connected to the wall. And so we would right. indicate right. Oh, yeah. phones like this. And she did that in front of young people the other day, my friend. And they were like, oh my God, you're so old. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's a divide. There's more of the meta test of what you're using as the phone analog in this situation, right? Right. Well, yes, but the thing is, it doesn't matter because even though all of us all have smartphones now, we still do Mm -hmm. the hang loose. We would never hold up the Lego hand to pretend we're on the phone. Interesting. I would never do the Lego hand. I would always do this. Yeah. It's probably like the millennial boundary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a fascinating, because you never had a phone that looked like this. I mean, I did, but yeah, (laughs) most of my life it hasn't been. Right. I had the clear phone. Wow. Oh, wow. You guys remember that? The 80s clear phone. Yep. I had a phone in the shape of Garfield. I remember the Garfield phone. Its eyes would open and close when you would You put know it. it. <laughs> Hell yeah, it would. So I had the Garfield. Yep, you'd pick it up. And oh, man, I was like 10 or something. In the heyday of Garfield, I was a Garfield super fan. <laughs> like, I loved everything Garfield. I could not get enough. Leighton looks so bored. What, what should we talk about, Leighton? <laughs> You're saying this like I don't like Garfield. <laughs> well, now Garfield has come back around to be like a thing people like ironically. Maybe. I don't like Garfield ironically. Garfield's cool. Jesus. Okay. Well, you guys are smearing well, Zoomers go. today. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> we Zoomer, deserve it, on. but still. Zoomers don't like Garfield ironically. They actually like Garfield. There's no way that's true. Really? Is there even a Garfield to like? Like, where's Garfield? I mean... In every meme, Uh, Garfield is endlessly memed, right? Leighton, you agree with that? I don't see memes anymore, so. (laughs) Is he like the main character on Twitter right now? Oh, not right now, but just in general. I'm saying Garfield memes exist. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. For me, the comics in the newspaper were very important as Mm. a kid. I was really into comic strips. I didn't care about comic books like Marvel stuff didn't matter to me at all as a child, but I could not have been more into like Bloom County and for better or for worse, or, you know, any of like the daily comic strip. Well, were your parents big newspaper readers? Yeah. So we got every day we got, so I grew up in North Jersey. We got the New York daily news and the times and occasionally the post. Was the New York daily news like a rag mag back then too? It was tabloid style, but it wasn't nearly as bad. Okay. As it was, I'm curious, actually, if I went back and looked, like right now, the New York Post is a straight up conservative thing. I saw, I was passing a newsstand yesterday, and there was a picture of a kid with a mask on his face, and it said, let our children breathe. You know, I was like, come the fuck on, guys. What are we doing here? That's a choice. Yeah. And then the subhead was something like, you know, governor says private school can't let kids off mat or whatever the fuck it was. It was just something with an obvious ideological bent. Sure, 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 sure. But it probably wasn't as pronounced in like the 80s, but maybe it was, you know, I wouldn't have picked up on it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe your parents like loved their tabloids. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) They love the daily news. That's funny. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would, I would peg the Wex as big tabloid readers, <laughs> not into the crossword. <laughs> Just all about the hot goss. Every morning, I'm sure my mom read like Liz Smith or some other gossip columnist in the Daily News. I believe Liz Smith was the Daily News' gossip columnist. Gotcha. My parents weren't like newspaper people. Mm-hmm. You know, I would catch a comic strip at somebody else's house or, you know, if if there was a newspaper like at school, I might see one. And yeah, of course, I would turn to the funnies and I would look at them because I think as a kid, that's the only thing that attracts you in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. Like you can't read the news. It doesn't make sense to you really when you're young. No, you have no idea what's going on. Yeah. (laughs) Movie times when you get your movie times from the newspaper. We would look at the movie times. We would look at the comic strips and then maybe even the classifieds were kind of funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. And then at, at high school, then I'd start doing the crossword mm-hmm. in the times. So then that became interesting. And now it's all Wordle all the time, baby. Are you a Wordle person? I wasn't until, so I don't know if you follow, I've been co-hosting once a month on a show called God Awful Movies. Do you know anything about this show? It's quite no. funny. I don't advertise it too much. <laughs> so my friend Eli Bosnick and No Illusions and Heath Enright, they do a show called God Awful Movies, and it's exactly how it sounds. We watch a terrible Christian movie and then oh, wow. dissect Ooh. it. Yeah. And Eli loves this shit. Like, every time I'm about to come on the show, I'm getting texts like, ooh, it's such a good one. And I'm like, to me, it's just <laughs> sheer torture. I just yeah. hate yeah. it, you know? And so I actually have to watch one tonight after I get off of this oh, podcast. God. Which one are you watching? I don't even know, but I looked it up and it was two hours and 14 minutes. And I was like, Eli, why are you doing this to me? That's God's number. Is it old <gasps> stuff or like the current stuff? It's a whole mix. Like sometimes it's really old. Sometimes it's, this one looks like a brand new on Amazon Prime, like in theaters kind of movie. Sometimes it has huge actors. Like they know this whole culture. Right. And so every weird like Christian movie actor, they know their whole catalog. They know everything yeah, about yeah, them. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Are they formulaic? Or is it all over the map? Well, it's all over the map. So there's something called um, Pure Flix, which is like Netflix for Christy people. Oh, God. Yeah. And so one of them that they made us watch was like a take on Sons of Anarchy, except it's like this like Christian guy riding his motorcycle around Texas, like spreading the word of the Lord. And so, yeah, they're all terrible. Mm -hmm. God honoring and inspiring media on any device at any time. Yeah, pure flicks. It's amazing. It's terrible. But we've also watched ones that are like (laughs) anti-abortion movie, you know, like some that are like social justice, like the opposite of social justice. Those are the ones I like, then I rip them apart. Yeah. I mean, they're painful to watch, but it's like, oh, I'm so mad. But anyway, Heath, on the last recording, he told me I should play. Because I was like, well, eh, Wordle, you know. So this would have been about a month ago. I was like, what is this? And he's like, no, it's actually really fun. And so I started playing it during the recording. And I, like, don't talk for, like, eight (laughs) minutes while I'm, like, solving the Wordle. No, and actually, this is so stupid. Anybody who listened to the show would know this. We always record on Friday mornings too early because they're on the East Coast. So for me, it's like... 10 o'clock in the morning or something. I've like mm. just woken up. But for them, it's the afternoon. And I was drinking my coffee and they made me laugh. And I like spit take. Like I've never done that before. <laughs> like coffee everywhere. Oh, no. All over my laptop, in all the keys, oh, all oh, over no. my microphone. I had to like stop down the recording to clean oh. coffee out of every nook. It's the worst <laughs> feeling. Did anything break? No. Okay, good. Well, now your keyboard's just going to smell nice. It does actually. <laughs> it has like a hint still. I remember going on a like bus field trip where they were shuttling our whole um, 
improperly named quote unquote gifted class, like doing like, oh, this is our (laughs) yearly trip. Pray they still don't call it that. But we were on the bus and this was like middle school too. And we were going to watch an animated film, I guess, on the little like bus monitors. And then someone's mom got real nosy and was like, no, here's what we're going to watch. And we watched a movie called Fireproof. Have either of you seen Fireproof? No. It's about a firefighter and his wife whose marriage is struggling because the husband has a porn addiction. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a Jesus movie, right? But why would this be appropriate for middle school? Because he overcomes his addiction and finds love for Christ. They've probably done Fireproof on Gam. I'm going to look. I'm very interested in hearing that because imagine a bus of 13-year-olds watching this shit. Yeah. I want to know what were the names of the fake porn movies he watched in Fireproof. That's what I'm curious about. Yep, Fireproof, June 26, 2016. <laughs> they covered it. <laughs> you got to yeah. listen to that episode. I'm going to listen to that. <laughs> yeah. But the, he like destroys not quite office space is it, but like he's getting pop-up ads for like real softcore porn and also looking at pictures of boats if I recall correctly, and mm-hmm. he's just like really struggling with his temptation and then he just like dumps his computer like boy, real bad. Is it safe to say there's like a built-in audience for these things? Yes. Oh, it's massive. It is a massive market. Right. These comedians like Gaffigan or Brian Regan or whoever who work clean, like if you do that and you get to a certain level, you can just make bank just playing to those audiences. Yeah. I think it was Gaffigan. One of them said, you know how I make my money for the year is I do a weekend in Salt Lake City and I play (laughs) an arena and I do three nights and it's like, whatever, 20,000 people a night. And I do that for four nights or so, or whatever it is. And then I make my money for the year and everything else on top of that is just gravy. And that's my strategy. That's amazing. Which wow. is incredible. So, yeah, I mean, you got to give people props for like finding a niche and doing it. Oh, yeah. It's all about finding the blank space on the board. And yeah. sometimes that blank space is just enough room for Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I don't really give them props. That like pisses me no. off, actually. So. Well, the messaging, you know, it, it, yeah, that, fair enough. If the messaging is truly abhorrent, which it can easily be, I would imagine, oh, then yeah. no. Oh, it's bad. You know, yeah. There's a difference between working clean and, you know, being anti-abortion or exactly. something. Exactly. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. For sure. And that's why I do this show. Like, I feel a little weird in my heart about it because since I've moved into psychology and I see patients on a regular basis, obviously I see patients that are religious and I don't, you know, I'm not judging them for their religious views. But I feel like there's a big difference between kind of skewering a Christian movie that is incredibly immoral and has a really immoral message. And I'm not going to like hold it against anybody. If they are religious, I'm not going to judge at all. And most of my patients, probably if you were to ask them, they wouldn't know. where I come from. They might know I'm kind of more secular. When I list things, I'll list like all of the alternatives, you know. But I I have a very different view too than I did when I like first came out as an atheist at 15 and was like super angry and, you know, very firebrand and stuff. I'm not really like that anymore. Yeah. Were you anti-religious when you came out as an atheist? Oh yeah. I wore an upside down crucifix. (laughs) hell yeah metal Uh, on a necklace or or what yeah my boyfriend at the time micah it was from his like communion or something we turned it upside down and like put a hole in it and everything and then i like i wore that wow Wow. real edgy yeah for years i probably first identified as an atheist like late teens or something like that 
Well, were you raised religious? My dad was Jewish. My mom was Episcopalian, and I was raised Episcopalian. Did you go to church? Sort of. Sort of. We did go to church, yeah. I was raised Mormon. Right, which <laughs> like, is a whole different deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I lived at church. It was horrible. It's like I came to it early because I had to. It's like a forced decision. Either do this or figure out how to get out because, right, you right. know, there's no passive way to be Mormon. Well, I guess some people figure it out. You know, at least in this country, you know, Episcopalianism is chill. Right. It was very mellow and... It wasn't until I think I got to college that I was explicitly like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm an atheist now. Mm -hmm. Huh, how about that? Yeah. And then I remember in grad school was when I first heard about, like, skepticism and that thing. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. That's, that's like, it's a whole deal. I didn't really hear about skepticism till way later. So I was mm -hmm. an atheist, right? And I would talk about it in my work. So after, like, undergrad, after grad school, when I started doing more science communication— I would just be like, yeah, I'm an atheist. You know, I don't believe in God. And I would talk about it. And then people would be like, hey, you want to come give this talk? Or do you want to come to our conference? And that's how I found skepticism is that I started attending atheist conferences, but not as like a right. fan, like because people were paying me to go. Yeah, so I would right. go. And then that's when I met like the SGU guys and everything was at like TAM. Um, right. But it all came from the atheism side first, weirdly. And I guess I was already a skeptic without knowing what it was because I was right. a scientist. Right. That was my end was like, I saw Skeptic Magazine or something on a newsstand and I was like, this looks interesting. What is this? I also would give talks at like skeptics or atheists groups. And I didn't realize that really what the distinction was until I gave a talk at some atheist group. And it was like mainly conspiracy theorists. <laughs> yeah. I remember I gave some talk, you know, some theoretical physics thing. And I remember some guy asked a question where he was like, hey, physicist, what happened to that thing where they found a planet and then next year it went away? <laughs> You're like, what? And I was like, yeah, I was like, what are you talking about? I need a little more context. <laughs> yeah. Was he talking about Pluto? <laughs> this was pre-Pluto, though. This was, I believe, before they declared Pluto a dwarf planet. I could yeah. be wrong. But it was definitely not that. He was convinced there was a conspiracy where a planet popped into existence. I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating this guy's position. Popped into <laughs> existence and then was hushed up yeah. by, you know, whoever. And then I started talking to people about it. And then I realized that a lot of these older atheists, they were coming at it from like an anti-religious point of view yeah. and not a pro-science point of view, mm -hmm. which is what kind of everyone we know is part of generally these days yeah. who is a skeptic. And they were like, these Older guys, especially, I mean, this is not just them, obviously, but these older guys, especially, are just kind of like shit stirrers and can be conspiracy theory kind of minded because they're not coming at it from like a rationality point yeah. of view. They're anti something, not pro something else. For sure. Um, and I think like we also make the mistake in skeptic circles of assuming that everybody's an atheist because they're not. Like there are a lot of true. religious people who just aren't like fundamentalists. Right? You can't right. really be a fundamentalist and be a skeptic. Like You can't believe in science and like weird young earth creationism. But right. you can for sure be like your own version of whatever your religion is. And it can completely oh, yeah. comport with your scientific views. Like Francis Collins does it, right? Like a lot of important scientists believe in God. That's fine. Yeah, you know, it's fine. and it's kind of messed up that like the skeptical community is kind of like, you're an idiot. Like, that's not nice. I hate that. Yeah, it, no, that, that pisses me off. Is that generally pretty widespread throughout the skeptics community? Well, the skeptic community, I mean, I'm going to say this outright, and I'm a member of it, is like overwhelmingly male. Yes. 
and overwhelmingly judgy. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to put it. I think that's absolutely fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's also very white. Oh, super white, super male, super Shocking. judgy. There's also this like weird bent of super libertarian across like there's it's that intellectual dark web vibe. Like there's a lot yeah. of skeptics <laughs> that are have sort of fallen into yeah. that like what's his name Peterson Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. And like, you know, they love Rogan and they love like these different people. And I'm not saying they're all, you know, they're not the same, but there is a very libertarian bent within the skeptic community. So working on SGU, like it's not uncommon that we'll get emails that are like, tell the girl she talks too much. Really? Classic. Oh, yeah. I guess that shouldn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would think that would come more from people outside. You'd think, but, the community, like, but they're ugh. clearly listening to our show. So that sucks. I love it when they send emails that say, tell the girl. And I'm like, what makes you think I don't have access yeah. to the, <laughs> Like, oh, we don't give the girl the password. Girls can't use yeah. email. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah. It's- I will say, I think it is. Because there seems to be a concerted effort to cut out the assholes. So I do feel like it's getting a bit better than it was, but it still has a long way to Maybe. Go. But also it's like any sufficiently large group is going to have a bunch of assholes in it. And, For sure. you For know, sure. the yeah. skeptic community is big. It's not huge, but it's big. SGU has a massive following. So, of course, sure. there's going to be some assholes, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, like, my following on Talk Nerdy is not like that. Nobody listens to Talk Nerdy and they're like, tell the girl. It's like, well, it's my fucking show. <laughs> like, why, why <laughs> listen if you don't like me? Everybody's super nice, but it's also a much smaller show. That's exactly the same thing with us. Like, mm-hmm. everyone who listens to this show is generally pretty chill and awesome. But if you go to like the larger fan base of like Game Grumps or something like that, which is much, much, much bigger, you're going to get some people who are just uncool and there to start shit. Yeah, I mean, but you're also going to get, honestly, I think a lot of kids who just haven't figured out how to be like a good human yet. Yeah. Like they're dealing with their own problems and this is their way to act out or this is their way to like figure out their own identity and and maybe, you know, let them incubate for another 10 years and they wouldn't be yeah. such little shits, but right now they're <laughs> shits. And then they just get to put the coins in the machine of like, we will continue to reward you being a shit. So now yeah. you have no incentive to improve yourself in any way. And now you get to see tangible effects of you being a cruel asshole on the internet. Right. It's like a game. Yeah, totally. It sucks. Because, of course, those people are also in the community. And then you get the just the legit, like, incels. Like, they are there. And yeah. so you have to be careful, too, because some of those are, like, fully formed. I shouldn't say fully formed, but ostensibly fully formed men, you know, who right. are just horrible and sexist and racist and yeah. garbage people. Do you ever get the emails? We get this, not frequently, but often enough that it's a thing, where someone's like, hey, 10 years ago, I said some really horrible shit to you, sometimes Mm. in person, but I realized that was awful and I'm sorry. I've gotten like two or three messages, not so much like 10 years ago, but I've gotten two or three messages where like a guy would have done or said something horrible. I, instead of being an asshole to him or instead of just blocking, actually responded and said like, I don't know if you realize how horrible that is. So like a common example would be when a guy's like, wow, 
you're so pretty and smart. I don't understand how that could calculate. Or like, you know, mm-hmm. oh, there should be. And then I'm like, I know you think you're complimenting me, but that's actually really insulting. And I'm going to tell you why. And there have been a handful of examples where guys are like, Jesus Christ, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Also, I was mm-hmm. really drunk last night when I sent you that message or like whatever their thing is. Oh, it's always the I was really drunk. <laughs> I, I go back and forth all the time about how much to engage with people. Same. Yeah, yeah. I have defaulted to don't do it ever, basically. Mm. Yeah. That's fair. I think it's completely fair when people do that. It's a personal choice. There's no obvious right answer. And sometimes you, you know, you can, like you said, help someone by engaging with them. Sometimes you can call attention to a larger problem by doing it. Such a complicated thing. And I have no idea if I'm ever making the right choice. Well, my view is like, it's your life and it's your social media. That's right. I put on my like therapist hat and I think sort of, where are you at in terms of your mental health that day? So if anything is going to roll off my back because I'm feeling like really confident and strong and like I could take on the world, like I might engage because maybe I feel like I'm doing some good in the world or maybe I feel like I'm affecting change or maybe I'm just like fuck you, and I'm going to tell you. But on days when I feel like it would not be good for my mental health to engage, those are the days where it's zero tolerance. Like, just don't look at them. Yeah. (laughs) You know, for me, a lot of it is once I had a kid, I was like, you know what? I have enough fucking things to deal with right now that I don't want to worry about this because there's constantly something going on that is something to worry about at home just because I have a small human I live with. That must be weird. It's super weird. <laughs> like, I can't imagine having a child. Oh, no, it's nuts. <laughs> well, especially now that, you know, she's almost eight. She'll be eight in May. And it's like, that's a full-on fucking person. Yeah. Like, that person has ideas and disagrees with me now basically all the time. You can do harm to that person if you're not careful. Like, harm that will last her whole life. I think about this all the time. Like, what's going to be the stray thing that I say that she remembers for the next 60 years? Mm-hmm. And to me, it was just an offhand comment. But to her, it was some deeply hurtful Mm -hmm. thing. Like you try not to do that. And I try to be very conscious of it, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But we all have those things that someone said kind of offhandedly that stick Mm -hmm. with us forever because, you know, just caught us at the wrong time. Yeah. And I think about this all the time as a parent, like you say something in a, as a bad mood or it's taken the wrong way or something like that. Oh, this is the day that I really did the damage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very scary as a parent, but. At least you're thinking about it. At least yeah. I'm thinking about it. A, right. you're thinking about it. And B, there is some good evidence to support the idea that like repaired ruptures are sometimes more meaningful than if a rupture never even happened. You mean like apologizing? Yeah, like really working on it and like, you know, helping them develop theory of mind and empathy for your state of mind and and also admitting when you're wrong. And all these things can actually build a lot in a child. So it's sort of less about whether you do or say that thing. It's more about hearing yourself do it and say it and like taking ownership of it and then doing something about it. Like that's the good news. That's something I consciously try to do a lot is if I don't know something, for example, I say, I don't know, let's figure it out. Or if I was wrong about something, make a point of saying, oh, I was totally wrong about Mm -hmm. that. Because she's seven. She just asks endless questions about (laughs) literally everything, you know, and I don't have all the answers because I'm a human being. And sometimes I will say something and then go look it up later and be wrong. And then we correct it. I think one of the biggest things to be careful of with children is things that might minimize them, that you don't realize minimize them. Because in your mind, of course, their opinions don't really matter. 
But like, if you were to say something to someone, like, I don't care what you have to say. Like, your thoughts on this don't matter. Like, that could be deeply painful to a child. And so those kinds of verbalizations are things that we would grapple with. This is the thing that to me is the hardest to navigate is the thing where you want to acknowledge their feelings, especially with fear. I find this. You want to acknowledge their fears and their feelings while at the same time reassuring them that they can deal with most of it on their own. Yeah. You want to teach them how to regulate their own emotions. Yeah. That's right. The thing I struggle with is, you know, she's seven, so she has a lot of ridiculous fears. (laughs) And by the way, the other thing that's weird is half or whatever of it is just a performance and is not something she's actually afraid of, but is a means to stay up late and watch more TV or whatever. Right, right. So, but she's learned about the ability to get what she needs from it. That's right. You have to sort of like break that cycle. Well, 100%. And I have a really smart fucking kid who (laughs) is also very empathetic and can sense, you know, what we and other people are feeling. So it's like when we get called into the room for the sixth time that night because she's afraid of, quote, haunted bread. (laughs) It's like, okay, (laughs) I see you. I acknowledge you. Your feelings are valid. However, haunted bread is not a fucking thing and go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know. Haunted bread. <laughs> haunted bread was some. I don't even. Is it a cartoon? Did she see it's, it? Yeah, in a it's cartoon? from some cartoon. Yeah, I figured. <laughs> the amount of like, I saw this in a cartoon sometimes months ago, and now I'm just like scanning through my brain about something I can pull out to claim I'm scared of it. There's a lot of that, which is clearly performative. <laughs> but at the same time, I remember being little. And being scared of some weird shit, like actually scared of some thing I saw in a movie. My default assumption is never going to be that it's complete bullshit. However, it's complete bullshit. Right. But also little kids, I think we sometimes take for granted and don't remember that little kids can feel deep shame. Uh And so it can also be the case that she's actually scared of something legitimate, but is too ashamed to open up about it. And so she's going to say something else because really what she needs is the comfort of her parents in that moment. It doesn't matter how she gets it. But if she's actually deeply afraid that like mommy and daddy are going to die in their sleep or like legitimate fears. Or something, yeah. Yeah, but it's like doesn't want to bring it up. And I think kids do that a lot more than we give them kind of credit for. Well, we do tell her that every night. Good night, Audrey. We might die in our sleep tonight. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hopefully see you. Oh, the the other day. I forgot to tell you this, Lynn. She was kind of sad or whatever that night. I put her to bed and I was like, good night, Audrey. I love you. I'll see you in the morning. And she just, there's this pause and she goes, I hope so. (laughs) And I was like, what the fuck is this? Where is this coming? I hope so. creepy. Brian, you are the haunted bread. You are about to be the haunted bread. And I was like, wait, is that a threat? Yeah, it sounds like (laughs) it. I think that was a threat. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let's move on to our first segment. Our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to recommend book, movie, video game, paper, scientific paper, or whatever. (laughs) Something you've read or experienced that you like and want to recommend to people. This segment is called What's Poppin'? And the theme song goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Great. Okay, we add that in post as we do every <laughs> week. Um, Layton, what's poppin'? What's poppin' for me is I'm a really big fan of the Mountain Goats. 
But I think more than I am a fan of the Mountain Goats, I'm a fan of John Darnielle as a writer. Wolf and White Van and Universal Harvester, two of my favorite books. And I've been anxiously awaiting his third novel. And I hadn't realized it had already come out. Yeah, and it's so grabbed that shit immediately. So what's popping for me is John Darnielle's Devil House, which is mwah, so fucking good. It might be the best novel out of his three. Like really? Wolf and White Van's always going to be my favorite, but this one in terms of just like, how ambitious it is and all of the moving pieces. And like, it's just fabulous. It's a real like, takedown is too strong, like too New York Post of a phrase for it, but (laughs) takedown of the true crime genre. So like, if you're into true crime, it's just like beautiful. As with all of his books, like by the end of it, I'm just kind of like lightly too heavily crying, depending on which book, just because he's such an incredible storyteller. But yeah, I'm probably going to reread it again. It's amazing. He's definitely one of those fuck you for being so talented people. Like, <laughs> I mean, just so good at so many things. I haven't read any of his books yet. Oh my God, Brian, please. No, I want to. I, I love his, uh, the Mountain Goat stuff. And I've been meaning to, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. They're great. Wolf and White Band's super short. And it's like one of my favorite books ever. That's his first one, right? It's his first one with the asterisk. I think he did like a novella before that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he does the thing where every book has like the really basic like spooky premise and then he subverts that so expertly of like oh you're in the door because of this thing but actually it's not about that at all it's about this more interesting thing in the skin of this like almost tropey thing yeah so yeah that's what's popping for me brian great what's popping what's popping for me this week is a pop science book i just finished humble pie by matt parker do you know matt oh yeah i know matt i Heard him give a talk on this a few years ago at, at Hadfield's Generator when I was a part of it. Uh, this was like pre-COVID. Yeah, it was January 2020. And I had forgotten that he wrote a whole book on this talk he gave. And it's like math errors in the real world. So Matt is a, for those of you who don't know, he's a comedian. He was like a, a math, always British, also maths yeah. uh, stand-up. <laughs> Really, really funny guy. We were faculty members at the same university, Queen Mary in London. Oh, really? Which I met him in the context, not of comedy. Oh, so did you not even know? I think I did. Like someone introduced me because he was doing some like public engagement thing too. And I was doing Story Collider in London. I know him through QED. Their big oh, right. conference there. Right, every right, year. right. Yeah, yeah. So I met him just in the context of, oh, he had some like joint appointment with like math or public engagement or something mm-hmm. like that. Maths. And they were like, mm-hmm. yes, thank you, maths. <laughs> uh, this is Matt. You guys should talk. And then we never really hung out, but we'd see each other from time to time at Queen Mary. And then we reconnected at this Hadfield thing. And then actually he's solved some uh, MIT mystery hunt puzzles with our team for the okay. last few years, too. Anyway. Really great, very funny guy. This book was just awesome. It was such a quick read. You know, he's, he's such a good communicator and genuinely funny. The math stuff for me, I understood all the math, but didn't know most of the stories. He has a story in the book. You might know this one, Carrie. It was a lake where they were drilling a salt mine underneath it. Do you know about okay. this? I don't think so. They were drilling some kind of oil thing near a lake with a salt mine. Long story short, the entire lake empties into this salt mine <laughs> and converts the lake from fresh water to salt water yeah. in the process. Uh-oh. And like the directionality of the water changes. 
And like everything dies. Everything dies. It gets <laughs> wow. replaced with a totally eventually new ecosystem. And all because like someone hadn't, you know, calculated the distance correct or whatever. Anyway, there's just a million stories. Sounds like Texas. Yep. 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 <laughs> uh, there are just a million cool stories in this book. You know, it's not super, maybe two, 300 pages. I just flew by. I thought it was a great book and I highly recommend it, especially if people are interested in, you know, math, science, anything yeah. like that. So, yeah, that's mine. Nice. Kara. Yes. I will tell you it's popping, but first I feel like I have to caveat that I'm allowed to talk shit about Texas because I was born and raised there. <laughs> yes, important to say. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is not me being judgy from the outside. This is my core <laughs> self, my core being here. Okay, so I'm almost finished with a book that if you listen to my show or to SGU, you've probably actually heard me talk about already. Much longer book, almost 500 pages. So I think I'm three chapters away from the end now, and they're relatively short chapters, called The Emperor of All Maladies. It's an oh, older book. Oh, yeah, I did book. hear you talk about that. Yeah, year, yeah, a lot of people have heard of it, but I'm not sure how many of those people have actually read it. It won the Pulitzer like 10 years ago when it came out. It's by an oncologist named Siddhartha Mukherjee. And, you know, I wanted to do a little more of a deep dive into cancer biology because because I work at a cancer center right now as a psychotherapist. And so I work with patients who are at every different stage imaginable with every type of cancer imaginable, all the way from first diagnosis to active treatment to survivorship, some of whom are in end of life. And, you know, my background is psychology, but also biology. I have a master's in neuroscience. And you know, the cellular stuff, like I've taken a lot of cell biology courses, but I've never really done super deep dives into cancer other than just like journal articles. So it's it's a stunning book because the way he describes it, I think it's actually the subtitle of the book is a biography of cancer. Mm -hmm. So like it's very narrative. And he, you know, tells all of these stories of all the different people who have been involved from the very, very beginning, you know, some of the earliest signs of cancer in early literature from like Hippocrates and stuff, all the way up through sort of the modern cancer era and what we didn't know, what we now know, how we found it out. And it's, it's fascinating. It's like an absolutely fascinating read. And I think it's one of those things like death, you know, I talk a lot about death. We didn't really do an intro of the show, so people might not oh. know who I am right. or what I do, uh, which is fine, which is fine. Yeah, well, we'll just do it after this. Yeah, that's fine. But like death is really interesting to me and it's a big part of my like career aspirations and stuff. And I think cancer like death is one of those things that is fundamentally interesting, meaningful, personal, but that culturally, especially in Western society, we just shy away from, we don't talk about, we're like, oh, that's sad. I don't want to read about that. That's dark. I'm not going to go there. And I'm just one of these people who's like drawn to things that are sad and dark. And I feel like it's imperative that we learn about things that challenge us in that way. So I'm constantly watching documentaries about like geopolitical conflict and famine and horrible shit just because I don't know why I feel like a responsibility to be aware of everything that's going on. But this book, I think, is such a great... If you've struggled with cancer yourself, if you have somebody in your family who has cancer, if you're just curious about cancer, it answers a million questions. It really goes into not just what cancer is, you know, how it's not a single disease. It's a lot of different types of right. diseases, but all of the central features, you know, what is an oncogene? What is a tumor suppressor gene? What's happening genetically when cancer starts to divide out of control? What's the difference between a tumor, like a solid tumor cancer and other types of cancer? Cancers can recruit their own blood vessels. Did you know that cancers actually mutate to have motility? 
I had no idea. Oh my God. When you think about all the different mutations and how some of them get involved in these kinase cascades, you know, so there are these rate-limiting steps. And there's a reason that cancer just explodes and divides over and over and over because the genetics tell it to, right? Mm-hmm. Like it gets rid of the brakes and it slams on the accelerator. But I didn't realize that in that genetic code, certain cancers will figure out how to make the cells mobile. And that's oh how metastases that's how often happen. Yeah. I always thought, oh, it just gets in the lymph, it gets in the blood, you know, breaks through an organ and it, it invades in that way. But no, some of it actually is mobile. Like oh I had God. no idea. So yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think it's important. And also there's a reason this dude won the Pulitzer. It's like really well written. Yeah. It's a great book. So we've had that book. My wife read it. Mm-hmm. Highly recommended it. Mm-hmm. She just loved it. So we've had that book for, you know, whatever, since it came out. And I, for exactly the reasons you said, <laughs> am scared of it and have not read it. It's like the reason I watched Schindler's List 15 years after it came. I was like, I don't want to watch Schindler's yeah. List. Like, I know I need to watch Schindler's List, but like, this is a commitment, you know, but it's not like that at all. A, I didn't cry a single time in this book. Yeah. This is nothing like some of my death books that I have over here, like (laughs) Tuesdays with Maury or like when breath becomes air. Like there are some books that are like intense to read that will take you to those places. This really, it's not like that. It's, it's fascinating more than anything. Honestly, I did the same thing with Breaking Bad. What? Well, because the guy has cancer. Like, I thought it was a oh, show about Jesus. this dude that has cancer. <laughs> oh. And 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 not I, a fucking cartoon. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So I was like, why do we want to watch a fucking show about some asshole that has lung cancer? Like, yeah, no. It's like about that for one second. <laughs> yes, that's it's right. It's not about that at all. Yeah, then it's just gun battles. I also think, like, what did they do about that? I don't remember the cancer ever being an issue after, like, season two. <laughs> They reference it, but he gets chemo and... Like, he just is okay. Once he becomes a drug dealer... They do it a few times and he goes into remission, but I mean, yeah. ultimately, with the plot of the show, it's the conceit of the show, but it like doesn't right. fucking matter. It's just Walt having permission to be a dick. Right. That's right. That was Vince Gilligan's whole point, right? Yeah. Is This is just yeah. the inciting incident that pushes him on this path to be a consummate a-hole. Yeah, which is not what most of my patients do. Um, (laughs) I've not had any Breaking Bad characters yet in the clinic. That's the first question you ask them. Are you going to Breaking Bad? Yes. And then if they say yes, then you can't see them. Then you get a cut. I've got a special clinic I will refer you to. But the funny thing is there are themes that I see even, and this is like anecdotal, right? But the more I read about psycho-oncology, which weirdly is not a huge field within psychology. I'm learning more and more that it's a massive field in psychiatry. Oh, okay. But there are plenty of psychologists who specialize in cancer, but it's definitely like there's no APA division dedicated to it. Nobody at my university studies this. I don't have a single faculty member. Yeah, so I'm having to really branch out. And some of it has to do with how Medicare pays for things, and it's hard to get reimbursed as a psychologist. And, you know, there are reasons. Like, psychologists can't work in hospice. Cool. Oh, really? What? I, didn't well, I mean, know that. we could if we don't mind not getting paid. What? Oh, boy. Medicare will only reimburse for social workers. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah. So, like, trying to do end of life work, I have to get a little bit creative. But I do find through working with my patients who have gone through end of life and through reading a lot of case studies and things like that, there's some very kind of classic things that often happen 
when an individual has cancer. It's not the same, not for everybody, but I do sometimes see like certain motifs like recapitulating, like reevaluating what matters in your life, reevaluating mm-hmm. friendship, sort of cutting the dead weight in your life and really prioritizing the things that are important. And that just happens when you have a new relationship with time. Which has happened over the past couple of years for almost everybody. Yeah, it's funny because, so I'm trained as an existential psychologist, so. I don't know what that means. Right, yeah, it's kind of weird. So long story short, like when you train in psychology, depending on where you train and what the resources are that are available to you and, you know, what books you're reading and what professors you're working with, there are orientations within psychology and psychotherapy, and then there are interventions within psychology and psychotherapy. So I use all interventions. I use cognitive behavioral therapy. I use, you know, all sorts of different approaches to help solve problems or work towards, you know, goals. Mm -hmm. But my orientation is existential. The three kind of main orientations in psychology are cognitive behavioral, psychodynamic, and existential. And this is going to be the most bastard summary of them. So apologies to the CBT and psychodynamic people who are listening, because I'm not trying to caricature what you do. But CBT is very you know, cognitive and behavioral. So it's based on thoughts, thought distortions, and behavioral changes. So it's oftentimes heavy on homework. It's heavy on like acute Mm -hmm. interventions, sort of change our thought patterns and change the way we act. And in doing so, we're going to change a lot of things about our lives. I use this all the time when people have different, you know, issues that they're trying to solve quickly. Psychodynamic is sort of the modern version of what Freud would have done. That was psychoanalytic back in the day, but they've moved away from it so much that they don't even call it psychoanalysis really anymore. Now it's psychodynamic. Not that it's pejorative. There are analysts out there, but it's Mm -hmm. not very evidence-based. So psychodynamic is more evidence-based. So they said, okay, let's look at the attachment theory stuff. Let's look at a lot of this like early childhood stuff and see, you know, how we can utilize that. But it's not just about your childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did anything from Freud survive as legit? First of all, Freud was the first dude who was like, you have an unconscious mind. And I think right. that that's been pretty important for most of psychology. You know, yeah. there's stuff going on in there that you're not aware of all the time, you know? Right. And so, yes, he was pretty important in that way. But weirdly, let's remember, Freud was a neuroscientist. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he was the first psychiatrist. So there was no psychiatry yet. Right, um, right, right. So that's sort of how he came into it. But then there's newer sort of building on the backs of those. Existentialism and humanism kind of came next. And now we're seeing like more third and fourth wave, like feminist, and I integrate a lot of that social justice oriented work, anti-racist work. But existentialism is more based on philosophy. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that's what existentialism is. And it's not monolithic. If you ask five different existential oh, therapists sure, yeah. what they do, they'll all give you different answers. But a guiding force or light for me has been a psychiatrist actually named Irvin Yalom. Well, he's written a lot of amazing books, but he sort of wrote the textbook, Existential Psychotherapy. And he posits that there are four givens of existence and that these four givens are fundamental to why people seek therapy and why people struggle in their lives from a psychological perspective. And so they include fear of death. That's a really big one. So like these grapplings with mortality. They include loneliness, meaninglessness, and then the last one is freedom and responsibility. So these main existential Hmm. givens are the things that I often grapple with with my patients. And there are different approaches to how to do that. You know, a lot of this work is informed by Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is a very famous book about finding meaning even against terrible circumstances, a.k.a. 
the Holocaust, Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And there are other writers, you know, there's like Gestalt Psychology, Fritz Perls, which I don't really borrow from too much, but that's technically a type of existential therapy. A lot of work informed by like Husserl and Heidegger and Nietzsche and Sata and Kierkegaard. I like read a lot of existential philosophy because mm-hmm. it informs the psychotherapy that I do. When you went to grad school, were you aware this was what you wanted to do? I had no idea. I thought I wanted to do something having to do with death, but I wasn't sure. So I did my undergrad in psych. I did my master's in neurobiology because in psych, I found neuropsychology. And I was like, I don't know enough about the basic cellular mechanisms to feel confident Mm -hmm. in this field. So I went back. I did a master's in neurobiology. Then I started a PhD in neuropsychology way back when. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Oh, right. But I don't think I realized what a neuropsychologist does. I didn't know back then that neuropsychology is heavily assessment-oriented. So you have patients who had a stroke, you have patients who had TBI, you have patients who have undergone these horrible changes to their brain or they're dealing with cognitive disorders. You give them all of these really complex tests that help you paint a better picture of what's going on in there. Mm -hmm. I did that for a year. I worked for a neuropsychologist for a year and I was like, this is not what I want to do for a living. It was not very fulfilling for me. This setting was hard too. It was a lot of people who were kind of chronic. They were sort of post-injury 5, 10, 15 years. So it was sort of like coming in for referrals to see if they qualify for social security disability. And it was like, hi, nice to meet you. Let's do all these tests together. Have a nice life. Like it definitely, I don't know. (laughs) I didn't feel fulfilling to me. So then I left and I became a, you know, a science communicator for 15 years. And I worked in TV and I did my thing and thought that was my new career. And then I started to get the itch. Like I never finished my PhD. I never went back. Also, like I live in LA. I work in TV. I'm in my late 30s. I'm geriatric, according to them. (laughs) You know, like, do I want to be feasting and famining my whole life in this industry? Is this what I want to do? So I was like, you know, maybe now is the time. Also, I was in a very privileged position. I remember taking out loans for my master's and working damn hard to pay them back. And I Mm -hmm. promised myself I would never take out loans for my PhD. This is something you may not know, Brian. This little inside baseball for all the nerds out there. Research degrees are almost always funded right? Like you're going to be operating under the grant that your major professor, your PI pulled for their lab. Practice degrees are never funded. So med school, law school, clinical psychology, you have to pay out of pocket for this stuff and it's expensive. Or even a master's in basically anything is never, ever funded. Yeah. Well, I got loans, right? And I had to pay them back. So I had enough success in television that I got to a point where I was like, I can pay for my PhD on a monthly basis. Like I can just make tuition payments monthly and I don't have to take out loans. So that's what I've done my whole PhD. That's amazing. It's crazy. Basically, I'm paying two mortgages. That's amazing. So I think about what it's going to be like when that (laughs) one, you know, direct, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah, is no longer there. last one. (laughs) But so anyway, I go back to school. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do psychology. It's what my background is in. It's what I'm going to be able to get into. And yeah, I want to see patients, but maybe I want to try out therapy. So I start, you know, I find the school that looks cool. And then I start learning about these different models and their view at fielding where I go is we're going to take this class where you're going to learn about all the different types of therapy and you're going to write a paper 
on each one. This is year one. This is like this first year, year one. of grad this school. This is actually, this is semester one. It's like a theories of psychotherapy class. So you learn about, you know, all these different types, CBT, you learn about psychodynamic, you learn about existential humanistic, and then you learn some ancillary stuff, write mm-hmm. a paper about each of them, dig deep into them. And then after that class, you're kind of expected to pick the one that spoke to you the most. Hmm. And then all of your other coursework is through that lens which is really cool. Yeah, it's what I did in physics, essentially. Right, right. And so I do think it's similar to physics because, like, it's all evidence-based. But, of course, there are types of physics, like more experimental physics, where there's a lot more evidence. And that's what CBT is because it lends itself to being evidence-based. It's more manualized. You can do a randomized control trial with it. Existential therapy is super adapted to the individual person. It's really hard to test that kind of stuff. It's not like a drug. Well, I'd imagine as soon as you said the whole philosophical component. Yeah, it's like, how do you test that? Yeah, right. Like, we know that it's a bona fide therapy. We know that people who receive existential therapy have better outcomes than people who don't receive therapy at all, mm-hmm. right? It counts in what Wampold calls the common factors. All bona fide therapies have certain common factors. You know, they go back to Carl Rogers, unconditional positive regard, non-judgmental stance, you know, just being there with somebody who's listening to you and holding space for you. It all leads to positive outcomes. But specific interventions aren't as evidence-based in mm-hmm. kind of like if you were a string theorist, not as much support for what you do, but it doesn't mean you're doing pseudoscience. That's right. Yes. It still means it's on a foundation. And that's kind of how I view it. So existential orientation is my framework. It's how I view, because I do think that grappling with these major givens of existence, like thrownness, thrownness is huge to me. And we can talk about that in a second. Like thrown Uh, as in being thrown, you threw a baseball. Like Like we were, and thrownness is the concept that we were thrown into existence through no consultation Mm. of our own. We did not Mm -hmm. decide to be born. We did not choose what family, what culture, what nation, what religion. This was something that was randomly thrust upon us. And we have to grapple with this throughout our developing life and throughout our development of identity and make sense of this. And it's very heavy. You know, and some people who are ultra-privileged never even think about it. That's right. Many people think about it deeply because they're like, this is completely unfair. And everything in between. But my view, because I'm secular in my approach, is that this thrownness is fundamental to a lot of our angst that we experience. And there's a lot of other kind of fun, fun (laughs) concepts (laughs) like that in existential theory. But there are some evidence bases too. Like I have a couple manuals, like meaning-centered therapy, which was developed by Breitbart at Memorial Sloan Kettering, is actually developed for metastatic cancer patients. And it's all about finding meaning and purpose against a background of suffering. And this Mm. is the kind of work that I really like to do. Did you, as an undergraduate or independently, were you into philosophy? Yeah, my minor was philosophy. Uh. So my undergrad was psych with a minor in philosophy. So I always loved existentialism. I had a great um, English professor in high school who I think really got me into existentialism, and I was always Mm -hmm. reading it. Um, And then I realized when I went back to school, I looked at my bookshelf And I was like, what do I read about all the time when nobody's telling me what to read about? And I was like, dang, I got a lot of books about death. (laughs) (laughs) Like, weirdly, death is super interesting to me. And so I was like, how can I maybe integrate this into my work? And that's what I do. And so my PhD thesis, my dissertation right now, it's qualitative. So it's a huge left turn. 
You know, all my uh-huh. old work was quantitative. Like I said, I was a neurobiologist working in a wet lab doing <laughs> right. cell culture, right, with mice. But my PhD thesis is I'm interviewing people who have chosen to die with medical aid. So they've chosen mm. oh. assisted death. And I'm asking them about their personal experience of undergoing the process, why they do it, what's been easy, what's been oh, hard, wow. you know, is there meaning in it? A lot of the literature on medical aid and dying is from the perspective of healthcare providers or from the families after the patient has died. There's very mm. little first-person accounts in the literature of the why and the how and it's just like the richness of the qualitative experience. So that's what I'm doing is I'm interviewing people And I've got two subjects so far, and it's been really fascinating. One of whom is still alive, one of whom has since actually had their death date. Hmm. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So you are still in the gathering stage of the dissertation? Yeah, because the thing about qualitative studies is that the data gathering and analysis is the dissertation. It's very different than a quantitative where you get all the data as fast as you can and then you spend a ton of time analyzing it. Like with qualitative, as you're gathering it, you're doing all of the work to analyze it. And your N Mm. is really, really low depending on your population. For you, it's two. For me so far, it's two. I'm hoping to get six. But, you know, not that many people die with medical aid as it is. And even fewer have the energy and the interest in talking in those final, yeah. And so it's a small slice of individuals. And also it's hard to reach them. You know, my recruitment efforts are not easy. The work that I do with the cancer patients, and many of my cancer patients have died too. I think I've lost five patients so far over the course Mm -hmm. of working at the cancer center. Um, And then I've had a ton who are in survivorship and doing really, really well. But between that and then also my dissertation work, it's paradoxically, it's incredibly life-affirming. Mm-hmm. I love the work I do. I it's yeah. very life-affirming. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. People are always like, how can you do this? It's so depressing. I'm like, before I worked in a cancer center, I worked in foster care. Mm-hmm. That was way harder. Yeah. Way yeah. harder. Uh, that yeah. tracks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's more life-affirming than TV? Uh, <laughs> right. <Everything>. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, but yeah. can I tell you about a TV show I've been watching? Yeah. What's popping, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Have you guys been watching The After Party? No, I've been meaning to. I love Ben Schwartz. Right. And I've been meaning to because I know he's in it. And I pretend to be friends with Sam Richardson, (laughs) mostly because a long time ago, he followed me on Twitter and like commented on one of my science stories and and oh, he had nice. a check mark and I was like, oh, who is this? So I I, yeah, yeah. I looked and then I was like, oh my God, it's Richard Splett from Veep. Right, I'm from freaking Veep, out. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. I messaged him and I was like, hey man, you know, I'm a big fan. He was like, hey, me too. And then like we've stayed oh, in awesome. touch. Like we we DM, we, we're like that's awesome. internet friends. We've never yeah, actually yeah, yeah. met. So I saw the show through his promotion on Instagram and he's amazing oh, nice. in it, by the way. He's great in everything. Yeah, he's the best. He was great in Ted Lasso. He was great in Veep. Yes. I was just listening to, who was it? Someone was talking about Ted Lasso, that Sam Obisanya is named after him. Really? Because he's friends with someone who, who was involved with the creation no of the way. show. And because they were buds, they named Sam Obisanya after him. After Sam Richardson? After Sam Richardson. That's and hilarious. then Oh, sorry. He was telling the story. What am I talking about? He that was talking about Mike Marin. Yes. And then they found a part for him yeah. in season two. I messaged him after I saw him. I was like, I finally saw you on Ted Lasso and you were amazing. Like, Yeah, he's great. That Ghanaian accent was out of control. Like, how did you study for it? <laughs> right. And he was like, oh, my family's Ghanaian. Like, he was like, I still have to <laughs> he learn it. He grew up it. going back and forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
But yes, the reason the show, I think, I mean, it's funny and it's great and the guys, like all of the actors and actresses are incredible, but it's so smart because the whole concept of the show, which you get in the first three seconds, is that like somebody dies and then they're trying to like piece together what happened and everybody's telling their accounts. So each episode is a different genre based on the character's account. So there's like an action episode. There's a musical episode. Like Ben Schwartz episode is a musical. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah, he's a great singer. It's really smart. It's like a really fun way to do it. Yeah, I've been really liking that show. That's my kind of like brain candy show right now. Awesome. Speaking of shows, let's introduce this one. Oh, yes. sure. Uh, <laughs> Only an hour and 45 minutes well, into the show. Well, it's not the latest. We have completely forgotten. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everybody, this is Late Night with Brian Wecht. Over here across from me, we have Leighton Greg. That is me. The one who was just speaking was Mr. Brian Wecht. Uh, Doctor. Do- Dr. Brian Wecht. Thank I'm so sorry. Much. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you don't have to give me a title, but when you do, get it fucking right. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you saying that, Brian, because I feel like I'm going to be a nightmare for the first year after I get my PhD. Oh, I was told in no uncertain terms by people, especially in England, they were like, use your title. Uh I was actually told by a friend, on every piece of documentation you have, put doctor because people will be nicer to you in England. I hear that. I think it's the case in the US too. All right. Well, mystery guest, would you care (laughs) to introduce yourself? Oh yeah. Who am I? Yeah. (laughs) My name is Ms. Cara Santa Maria, soon to be Dr. Soon Cara to be Doctor. You may know me from such podcasts as Talk Nerdy with Cara Santa Maria and The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, or such television shows as Brain Games and Explore on National Geographic and other shows. Bill Nye Saves the World on Netflix. And I'm also working on my PhD. Perfect. Awesome. Yep. I'm an old PhD student over here, and I like it. It's hard to go back to school, though. Oh, I bet. Like, do homework again? Like, have tests? Oh, my God. Oh, tests. Fuck. Right? Like, do you still have the stress dreams? You know what? I never had stress dreams during my PhD. I I never had them. No, but the academic-oriented stress dreams. I never had academic-oriented stress dreams. I just never did. What? Leighton, did you? I mean, yeah, everybody does I had regular academic like test ones or being naked in school but then I also after going to art school would get like I'm in crit nightmares mine were always I show up to like fill out the final paperwork to be able to graduate and they're like oh there's a whole class you didn't take or like oh <laughs> you failed that class and you have to retake it now and I was like oh, what wow. I'm about to graduate like that was always my super depressing stressful I yeah. never had anything like this what? Maybe that makes me an anomaly, I guess. I mean, I've had stress dreams for sure, but not academics. What is the content of your stress dreams? It's it's all like monsters chasing me kind of shit. That's so weird. I had an ex-boyfriend who had those kind of dreams. I've never had a dream where something was chasing me. Or like falling out of a plane. That's a classic, I feel like, stress what? dream. I've had those dreams for sure. Interesting. I mean, we've got an N of three here, so it's probably right. completely... But do you think there's a gender component to this? It's not wild to think so it's certainly possible i have been chased dreams that's been like my whole life my analog of falling out of a plane is nightmares where i am in a rocket to space because i'm afraid of space so that makes Mm -hmm. sense i would be afraid of that too yeah fuck that space very cool do not want to be there ever because space is death oh yeah you know i have a young child who's very into space stuff and she's like i want to go to space and we had the whole do (laughs) you conversation (laughs) Because I was like, honey, that is a great goal. 
not trying to talk around it, but I was like, what do you think you actually have to do to go to space? Like, let's discuss it. Not in graphic detail or anything, but, you know, just like, what do you physically have to do to go to space? Have you heard of gamma rays? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's, let's have a conversation. Or the however many years of training it is. To, right. Although, or you could just be a billionaire. Right, that's right. Or you could just, yeah, pay whatever. Just build a penis rocket. You'll be fine. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the final segment. Layden, would you care to introduce it? Welcome to our final segment after our second segment, which was the introduction to the show. Our final <laughs> segment is called Peaches and Lemons, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. And the theme song goes right here. Peaches and lemons. Peaches and lemons. Great, incredible, amazing wow. theme song. Wow. Every time. Absolutely rips. So we will each start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a minor bummer or annoyance. Oh yeah, I'll go first. I feel like I just talked about this. I don't understand how I've been sleeping every night for almost 47 years and I'm still bad at it. <laughs> it's the thing I practice more than anything else and I'm objectively terrible. How? How am I bad? It's I don't fucking get it. <laughs> like I wake up constantly. Now, I, as I've talked about in this show, I'm using a CPAP machine, which certainly isn't helping, although I was hoping it would. I just don't understand how the one thing I do really more than anything else, except for maybe like breathing or something, I can still well, be so Clearly you're bad. not breathing the whole time you're sleeping or you yeah. wouldn't need that right. CPAP. No, exactly. Yeah. I just don't get it. I'm not very data driven about it. I've never worn like the monitor. I mean, I've had sleep studies, but I've never like tried to figure out, you know, to game the system or whatever. But, Wait, but isn't that what a sleep study does? Well, yeah, yeah. But that is like, I've done two of them. Some people wear the thing every night and they're like, okay, well, I drank caffeine, you know, six hours before this. And if I blah, 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 you know, some people are real into that kind of biohacking kind of stuff. Well, I have a sleep study coming up and I have to wear the thing. Yeah, I've done it for the sleep study, but at no other times. Oh, so were they old when you were like in-house with the EEGs or was it like now they have the headbands? I did two. I did one at home with the headband. Cool. Okay. And then the doctor was like, go into the hospital and do Ugh, the full thing. I don't want to have to do that. I'll tell you when you're not going to sleep well is exactly <laughs> then. Yeah. Because it's like you have this all the shit on you. It's just awful. Was that to figure out whether you have apnea? That's right. So the home test indicated that I probably did. And then the doctor was like, go do the stay over at the hospital. Right, because you were with a pulmonologist. My sleep studies with That's a right. neurologist. It's to figure out oh. if I have like a circadian problem oh, and, gotcha. and if I'm getting enough REM sleep, that yeah. kind of stuff. Yep, that's my lemon. All right, that's valid. Uh, Layton. My lemon is that I got a new phone today, which meant that I had to go to Verizon Wireless, which is the worst oh. thing. Are your favorite people. How is it so bad and how has it been so bad my entire life? And the people are, they're so nice. I don't want to be like upset about the time that I have to spend there, but it is just like every second I'm like, how is this not better? And I'm like, hey, can I get this other thing removed off my thing today while we're doing this? And they're like, no, actually, you're going to have to call them to do it. And I was like, oh, and be on hold for two hours? And they were like, no, they usually pick up. And I was like, they usually No, they up. don't. <laughs> it, <sighs> That's exactly what you want to hear from customer service. They usually pick up. Fuck that. Why do you keep going back to the same terrible company if you don't like them? You have freedom of choice. Are any of the other ones better? I think T-Mobile's great. I've never had a problem with T-Mobile. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I've, I've been right. pleased the whole time. And yeah. 
from what I understand, okay, so the, the service is not always great in like some pockets of America, but I think LA is their like testing ground. Mm. And so that's why we have such good service in LA. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. I've never had a service problem here. Yeah, yet. in LA you don't. But like sometimes if you're in like, you know, upstate New York or something, it might not be very good. The reason I got it is because when we were living in London and I came over here and wanted a per day SIM card that I could pay whatever, they charge three bucks a day for unlimited data for a U.S. SIM card. So I would just like load it up and mm. fucking charge the card. It was awesome. And then I just kept it. Also, they have a, it's like One World or something. It's like part of all of yes, their programs. Right. In so basically that. any large market, you get free texting. That's right. So we toured Australia. We toured Europe, New Zealand. I could text and use data everywhere. Yeah, you just can't make phone calls. But who makes phone calls anymore? Yeah, why? True. All right. Good to know now that I've purchased a new phone to continue <laughs> doing the Verizon wireless. So you got a lemon squared. <laughs> oh my God. No one's ever called it a lemon squared before, which I actually really love. Yeah. What's your lemon? So it sucks because it's something that I used to love and now I'm starting to hate it. Uh-oh. So I've been driving electric for nine years. All through Chevy. I had the Chevy Spark. Mm -hmm. And then once the Bolt came out, I got the Chevy Bolt. And now I'm on my second lease of a Chevy Bolt. And it had a recall on it. And I was super lazy and put it off for a year. And then I finally took it in. And they're like, okay, it'll be like two hours. We just got to reboot something with your battery. And I get a call. They're like, something's weird. We're going to have to keep it overnight. We'll call you tomorrow. Okay. Uh So then they call me the next day. And they're like, so... While it was updating, it spontaneously restarted and it fried one of your modules. And I was like, I don't know what a module is like in yeah, my computer. That could be any, literally anything. Right. And so they're like, we're waiting for the part. And that was five weeks ago. No. So I've had a, Oh my God. And they didn't even offer me a loaner. What? Yeah. He was like, we'll let you know next week. And I go, I need a car. And he was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, go to this rental place, give them this code. Like, oh, sure. Yeah. We could do that. Like an afterthought. Yeah. Like everyone, you know, you don't have an extra car. Right. Well, yeah. What is that about? Why don't dealerships just give you the same car you drive? Because they have like 15 of them on the lot, but they don't. They make you go to a rental place. So now yeah. I'm driving like a Toyota Camry, which means I have to put gas in my car, which I forgot right. how to do because <laughs> it'd been a yeah. decade. It was so weird. And I was like, oh, this smells so bad. Oh, it's so expensive. Yeah. Why do people do this? So yeah, that's my lemon is that my car literally is lemoning right now at the dealership. Oh and I've got this car that barely fits in my garage because it's really weirdly long. I pull in and then I have to like get out and make sure it's all the way in before I close the garage door. It's a, it's a pain. Hmm. Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> you know, we're uh, slightly in the market for a new car. And actually, because I've heard you talk about your Chevy for so many years. Oh, it's an amazing car. I have no idea why this happened. Yeah. This is the first and only time this has been a pain. Sounds just like a freak weird I think it's a accident. Fluke, yeah. yeah. But yeah, go test drive one because they're amazing. They have bird's eye cameras. Teslas don't have bird's eye cameras. Also, fuck Teslas. But Seriously. Like. The Bolt is amazing. And now they have a Bolt EUV, so you can get an even bigger version of the same car. Oh, really? And like, I've always wanted to drive an SUV. I just never did because they were like gas guzzlers. Yeah. We have a hybrid SUV now. We have a hybrid RAV4, and we love it. It's awesome. RAV4 had a fully electric for one year, and then they pulled it from the market. Yeah. Well, we would have gotten that had we had the time been right. People who still have it love it, but I think the range is too low. Like, you know, the newer cars, the range is like 250, 280. Yeah. My first electric Spark had an 80-mile range, Aww, which was fine in L.A., but I couldn't sure. get a Joshua Tree or anything. Yeah. 
All right, peach time. Three peach good time. things. My first one, I'm just going to go first because fuck it. Uh, my first one <laughs> is that despite Lemon, I've been watching foldable smartphone technology for fucking years since they first started doing it of like, I want this to be viable so badly. So I'm giving it a shot. It's beautiful. It looks so cool. It is the coolest shit in the world. It looks dude. like actual magic. Yeah. Yeah. You can put a GIF on the outside oh thing. You can control your music. And like, it's perfect. Because what pushed me is that like, I was using my little tiny Palm phone with my big phone and the text message app that Verizon forces you to use to make that work is just such dog shit. And it was like messing up my ability to get calls. And I was like, I can't. And I thought, okay, well, then I'll get a new phone. Every phone that is out is fucking massive. The smallest thing that is like actually in a reasonable size phone is an iPhone mini. And I'm not switching to iPhone. It's not happening. And this one's huge when you unfold it, but then you can put it in your pocket. So cool. I should try to text you a link again to see if it actually works now. It should work. I was going to ask you if you wanted to do it and you can't see the crease. Like if you're outside, you can kind of see it. But if the screen's on, you don't. It's also like fun to touch the crease. Like it's, <laughs> it's not distracting. It's like a fun little tactile. Anyway, whatever the fuck. Also, I got a bunch of parts for building keyboards. So if anybody wants to hear what my new switches sound like. So Kara, Leighton builds mechanical keyboards. Okay. Yes. And cool. uh, is... Constantly soldering shit. ASMR. Cool. Folks at home, I guess, who don't subscribe to the Patreon, which you should do. For sure. I'm about to build a macro pad. I'm about to build a corn with low-profile chalk robin switches. And I got those PCBs today. Very exciting. And then my third peach, I'm going to go full like tech trio. I also built this buttonless trackball called a Ploopy Nano. It's fucking <laughs> awesome. It's the greatest. Like, it doesn't make sense that I'm doing this right now, but like, my mouse is going apeshit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's a gearhead peach week for me. Hell yeah. Someone else who has peaches. I will go. First peach is I spent the last week in Palm Springs. I did a little mini writing retreat because I was writing some music for a thing. I love the desert in the winter, it's the best. Mm. And yeah, I had a great time and actually. I wrote a bunch of stuff, sent it off to the people fully expecting, like, trash it, do V2. And they were all just like, yeah, this is great. Done. Oh, yeah. great. Which, like, rarely happens. <laughs> so uh, not only was it lovely to be out there, the writing part of it was very successful. Peach number two is I did something yesterday for the first time in two years, which is I sat inside a coffee shop and <gasps> did a little work on a computer. And it was awesome. You know, I had COVID in December. So after three shots and Omicron, I felt still pretty protected and numbers are definitely much better than they were, you know, a month ago. So it didn't feel wholly irresponsible. So I sat in Silver Lake Coffee, which mm. is bad coffee, but not at all pretentious. <laughs> so it was nice to just sit in the coffee shop and have, you know, coffee shop weirdos around. It was great. And Final Peach is we booked some travel for Audrey's Spring Break. We're going to go up to Portland and Seattle for a week and a half or so at the end of March, beginning of April, which is not the tourist season up there, but who the fuck cares? We're going to see some friends and hopefully everything is fine by the end of March or at least okay enough to travel. I guess we'll see, but I'm optimistic that it will be. So it's just exciting. That's will still be Audrey and Rachel's first time on a plane in a couple of years. 
Yeah. Damn. Yeah, I've been traveling a bunch for work stuff, but it's exciting to do a family trip. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I got. Kara. Okay. Peaches. I'm going to hold, please. Oh, this killer. is the biggest peach in my life every day, all day. Hi, Keller. This is Killer. He's my little man. He's Hi, the love killer. of my life. He's getting old. He's going gray. I was going to ask, how old is he now? He's 12. Oh, my gosh. I know. He was just asleep. Oh. Might be getting some like ASMR, like doggy mouth sounds. <laughs> Please. But he's with me all day, every day. And he's literally the best dog ever. He's funny and loving and super smart and well-behaved. And everyone who meets Killer loves him. And so say hi, Killer. Hi. Okay. Hi, Killer. I can go back to bed. <laughs> What is it about like kissing your dog's head that is the greatest thing on the entire planet? Now have a kid, it's even better. (laughs) Mm. I don't know. (laughs) No, no, I swear, kissing your kid's head is the best thing in the world. Like it's even better (laughs) than a dog. Oh, it's my favorite thing. I believe it. Anytime I see Audrey, I just have the uncontrollable urge to just like tossle her hair. Like (laughs) if she passes by me, I gotta give a little smooch on the head. Gotta do it. It makes sense. It makes sense. There's some travel peaches. I've been so grounded through COVID. Like, I went to Scotland early in COVID, like pre-vaccine. Oh, that's right. I remember you talking about that, yeah. Yeah, that was weird because I was like, I wore like my N95 and cloth mask over top and like gloves. Ten hours. Yeah, like it was everything about it was weird because it was back when like we didn't know anything. But SGU is going back on the road. So we're going to start doing our extravaganzas again and our live shows. So that's fun. And been booking the travel for New York and Boston coming up in March. And then um, I also booked myself... A uh, super cheap, super last minute trip to Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> oh, nice. That's great. So I follow like these different travel sites mm-hmm. and every so often they just have these insane deals. So I have to tell you guys about this deal because it's like too good. So right. round trip flights from LA to Puerto Vallarta, four nights in a all inclusive with like, you know, everything you could need, mm-hmm. a spa credit. And a COVID test on site before you come back and transfers from the airport. Guess how much? 400 Oh, well, that's way too cheap, Brian. Come okay. On, well, I, I, was, I was underplaying. <laughs> I was doing prices right. Uh, a thousand bucks. Six ninety nine. Oh, my God. Whoa, it's insane. So I know. What? So I'm very excited. It's like sometimes you see things like that and you're like, I can't afford it. It doesn't matter. Or it feels like a trap. Sometimes it's so cheap that you're like, what's wrong with this picture? But it's not a trap. It wasn't even plus tax. That's awesome. Tax wow. included. <laughs> it's amazing. Damn. What's the company? Oh, Travel Zoo. Check out Travel Zoo. Okay. They're amazing. I got a trip for the Maldives through them, which was really good too. How was that? I haven't gone yet. I'm fascinated by that place. I can't wait to go. So it was back in like the height of COVID. They were basically selling these like Use it within two years. If you can't end up going, you can cancel it for free. Yeah, before it's underwater. Yeah, nobody was coming. So they were like, we need income now. We need to pre-sell all these things. I want to say it was like two grand for like eight days, all inclusive. I'd like some super luxury. Oh yeah, this insane over the water with, get this, a 400 US spa credit daily. (laughs) Like what? what? I know, you're 
like, how are they paying? So I was like, yes. So it's in my inbox and we're still trying to figure out like, when can I go? I'm waiting on whether I matched it oh, internship. Wow. Everything's horrible and up in the air. Yeah, I might yeah. have to move for a year. It's all crazy. Oh, fuck. Um, yeah. So wait, we're talking about peaches, not like. Right, right, right. <laughs> You're going to the Maldives. like. Yeah, I'm probably going to go to the Maldives at some point unless I have to cancel the damn trip. But I'm definitely going to Puerto Vallarta for four days coming up very soon because it was really inexpensive considering and I need to get away. So that's my peach. Killer's my peach. And... I don't know. I ordered Din Tai Fung for dinner last night. It was oh, really nice. good. Oh, nice. I haven't had that in a long time. Oh, wait. I have a better one. I have a better one. For Valentine's, not on Valentine's night because that was the superb owl, which yes. I do not care about the sports ball, but I did not want to be out in public. So the night before Valentine's night, I went to my favorite restaurant, Osteria Moza. Oh, yeah. Which has a Michelin star. That's a good one, yeah. I mm. love it dearly. And I had a really good dinner and it was amazing. So that was my other peach. I love it. I think that pretty much does it. So, Kara, thank you for being here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Do you have stuff that you want to plug? Come to the SGU shows. If you're in Boston yep. or New York, go online. We've got private shows and extravaganzas. Both are available. So go online. They're both in March. Both super fun. Yeah. Yeah, super fun. Brian's been on stage with us before. Had a blast. It was the LA show, right, Brian? Or were you on the road with us? I came to Denver and then popped on stage briefly for that too, right? Yeah, yeah, Okay, so that was our last show before. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise, I would say just my website, karasanamaria.com, because you can click through for Patreon. And I think one of my new perks is that you get an ad-free version of the show. Woo, woo. So check it out. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. All right, everybody at home, that was an episode. I'm so hungry, I cannot formulate an outro. So... <laughs> Go do your homework or come or whatever it is that I tell you to do at the end of these. So uh, see you on the episode. Bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonNight at gmail.com. <laughs>